Hello, everyone, and welcome to a brand new motorsport podcast series. I'm Ed Foster, and this time we're turning our attention to Porsche. The series is called Porsche's Winning Formula. Ever since Ferdinand Porsche designed the Volkswagen Beetle in 1939, eight years after launching his eponymous company in 1931, Porsche has been at the forefront of vehicle design. While the Pretty 356 was the first car to carry the Porsche name in the late 1950s, many of you will automatically think of the 911 that arrived over 10 years later. Arguably the most successful sports car of all time. The model is still being built nearly 60 years later. In those years, Porsche has won the Le Mans 24 hours more than any other manufacturer. It's been victorious in Formula One, both as a constructor and an engine supplier, and it's won countless GT championships with its beloved 911. Porsches have even done rallycross and rallying. In this special podcast series, we are gonna to speak to the racers that are at the forefront of the German manufacturer's racing development and key names from the road car side to get a better idea of how this great company has had so much success for so long. Hello everyone and welcome to the Motorsport Podcast. This one is another one in Porsche's winning formula series and is in partnership with Princess Yachts. Joining me today is Romat Dumat. Romat, a very, very warm welcome and thank you so much for joining the podcast. Yeah, hello, first of all, and thank you very much to invite me for sure. Yeah. Now, there's, we've got loads to talk about. Um, and I was just I was sort of trying to sum up your career in a tweet earlier. And <laughs> you've, you've won Le Mans, Sebring 12 hours, 24 hours of Nürburgring, 24 hours of Spa. You've raced in the Dakar. You hold the Pikes Peak record, the Festival Speed record, you rally a 911. Um, the, you basically, your career does not fit in a tweet. Um, so, so I think we'll struggle to get it all into an hour. But what did your, does your family have obviously a, a racing, racing history and how did you get into the sport? Well, yes, actually, my, my dad was and still actually even at 72 year old, a, a rally driver. And, uh, but really amateur, you know, and, uh, but uh, he was always a big fan of Porsche. And um, when he was young, actually, he was doing some rally with the, with a Porsche. And um, yeah, when I was always following rally uh, at the start of, you know, when I was like eight, 10 year old, but I was really, in general, a big fan of motorsport, of all motorsports. Um, I was following Le Mans for sure. First time I sit on a Porsche 962, I think I was like 12 year old. Uh, it was an Almeras car, for, and uh, and you know I was always looking for Formula One, for Ali, for Dakar, for Pikes Peak, all this kind of uh, yeah motorsport in general. My I have an older brother who was also a good, uh, good go kart driver, but he was not so enthusiastic mm -hmm. like uh, like I was. So yeah, that's uh, it's it's how we started. <laughs> yeah, and uh, you know you've you've done so many Le Mans now. Um, does it ever get? Does it? You know, does Le Mans ever get old? I mean, it's, you know, it must, it's such a huge event, but surely when you've done it, the number of times that you have, is it still as exciting? Uh, definitely. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, I had a feeling, so last year was a 20, yeah, 20 time already. <laughs> and um, it's still the same, you know, like last year I drove with a Rebellion car and we, sh we, we still had the chance to, you know, to be on a podium or why not to try to hope to win, you know, it was Toyota, but still on the way to Le Mans, driving there, you know, with my car, 
had the same feeling and the same pleasures and the first time, the same also pressure. Definitely we show that it's a good sign. So I have to say, these 20 years pass so fast, you cannot imagine. Uh, first of all, I know Le Mans very well because I was at school there. I was doing all my single seat career in Le Mans with Elf. So I was in following Le Mans, the 24-hour race, plus I was spectator when I was 18 years old. So when he started uh, the first time in 2001, I was 24. And at the time, it's, it's crazy to say at the time because it looks like I am very old, but at the time, uh, driving Le Mans was only for old driver. And when I started the first time in 2001, um, I was one of the youngest or the youngest. And um, yeah, the race went very well. And this is why I came a Porsche factory driver in one race, you know, uh, just because this Le Mans race was so special, a lot of rain, a driver could, you know, shine, let's say like that. And uh, the, the, my boss at Porsche at the time was Herbert Amferer. Suddenly came to me and said, okay, who are you? What are you doing? I said, hey, I'm doing Formula 3000. I'm driving in Japan for Toyota. And the guy in five minutes said, okay, I offer you a contract. This will never happen again now, I think, in, the, in GT time that you have so many categories and so many good drivers also. But uh, yeah, it's how it started. It's, um, and, you know, even after 20 years, I still have the same motivation, like, uh, yeah, like a young baby. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing, I mean, because that, that race, you, you know, you were talking about in 2001, um, you finished second in class, which is obviously an amazing achievement. Did you, I mean, I know you obviously you lived at Le Mans and you knew the circuit from doing bits and pieces there, but was it not quite a daunting race to step into? Because, you know, you've done Formula 3, Formula Renault, I think you'd, I don't know whether you'd done your F1 test by then because you did a Renault F1 test as well. But, it was later, yeah. Mm. Yeah, but that was, and um, it must have been a daunting thing, Le Mans. Yeah, actually, that was crazy it's because, you know, in 2001, it was a year that we have so much rain. I think it rained for 20 hours and it was so hard. And I remember uh, I was driving this Porsche with a Yokohama Taras and uh, who were very bad on the rain. And I was, I had to remember that I was in Unodier. And, uh, you know, and at the time we finished seven overall with a GT2 car. So it was the smallest category because it was so much rain. On the night I overtook even a Cadillac at the time was a LMP 900, so LMP1, or now we could call a hyper car. <laughs> and because they were all struggling with so much water. And I was thinking, Wow, that's 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 just a crazy race, you know. It was from what I was used to, my single seat, you know, whatever. Suddenly going to these things, I was thinking, this guy is just crazy. But you have to accept also that the rhythm of you know in terms of competition was not as strong or as hard as it is now. So a young guy who was a little bit intelligent, not crashing, could easily uh, you know be on the front and and make. Uh, a good result, but uh, it was a car where a lot harder than to drive than now. Uh, it's a, it was an H gearbox, you have to bleep and so on and so on. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's a, uh, it's a, for for sure. It's a really really good uh, yeah memory. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's interesting because it, it also in the series we've we've spoken to Jochen Mass and Klaus Ludwig, and and interestingly neither of them actually liked Le Mans. And I think obviously when they were racing in the 956, the 962, it was 
it was more dangerous. But one of the big things that Jochen didn't like is his first Le Mans was in a Ford Capri. And he hated <laughs> spending the whole 24 hours looking in his mirrors. You've seen both sides of it. You've, you know, you've, you've won it in LMP1. You've raced it in GTs. Do you, is that still a, a big thing nowadays if you're in a GT car and just constantly watching mirrors? Uh, yeah, definitely. But for us, I mean, for the Porsche driver, was a big advantage to first drive on GT and later to drive on LMP. I mean, I drove Le Mans in LMP quickly in 2003, I think. But it was a big advantage to drive, you know, GT and LMP. Because, you know, like that, you are able to judge, I think, where a GT can be passed or not, where a GT is fast or slow, or how is reacting a GT, let's say, on a Porsche corner. And that was a big advantage, you know, when you are an LMP, because you can easily find a way to go or not to go to avoid any accident with a, with a GT car. So for me, it was never a big problem to, to go from a GT car to an LMP and, and back, you know, in Le Mans or even in Le Mans. But even in Le Mans with a GT, you have a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah. You, you mentioned that your father, you know, loved Porsches. You obviously love Porsches. And there's not many people who rally a 911. Where does that love of Porsche come from? Uh, yeah, I think, you know, uh, I am from South of France and um, where I'm where one of the biggest um, family friends, French family are the Almeras family. So I grew up really with them. And uh, they were, you know, at the time uh, making Porsche for Nicola or even Walter Roll and so on and so on. So for me, First of all, Porsche was always a brand of more of rally than in Le Mans, I have to say. And uh, as I already told you, I was a big fan of rally. And uh, I assumed that it was the story is actually that when I won the IMSA championship, American Le Mans, in 2008, uh, the boss at the time from uh, Porsche was Armut Christen. And I told Armut Christen, I said, yeah, I don't want any prize money, but what I want is to do a rally with a Porsche. Because I saw in Weissa that at the time, um, Roland Kussmoll was, uh, was doing a, a Porsche for a Belgium team, you know, a 996 basic car. And I saw this test car. The car was always uh, with uh, Walter driving or Marc Duet and so on. But, you know, I was already 30 years old. And I said, I want to do a rally with this Porsche, with a test car. So the deal was that if I'm winning the championship, they will give me the car for one rally. So end of the year, we won the championship with the RS Spider, who was the best car in the world. And uh, I said, okay, now I can do my rally. So it started like that. So I took the car, the test car was really, really used at the time. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and I made one rally in South of France called Criterium des Seven, who is quite famous in France, really hard rally with a lot of rain and, and dirt and whatever. And uh, I made the rally with the Porsche. And suddenly I finished the rally and I said, okay, now I understand how it's complicated. For sure, my dad was trained, was helping me, you know, with the pace note and everything, but you always know better than your dad, you know, that's normal. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, okay, now I will do my own car. I, I understand how it is because I always liked a lot, you know, it's why after I create my team, but I always like a lot all what is uh, the, the technique in the mechanic and so on. So I said, okay, I will do my own car. So I bought a 996 and I made my own 996 rally Porsche as I wanted. And it started like that. That was in 2008. And since that, okay, after I created my team and Pike Speak, I mean, I guess you will speak later about that. 
but uh, it's how it started. And uh, yeah, since that, I never stopped. I made a few races with the WRC car, like the yeah, Rally d'Alsace, the WRC event and so on, but mainly always work with the Porsche, yeah. Yeah, is it? It's not really a perfect rally car, is it? I mean, when you look, when you look at sort of modern rally cars, they're all hatchback, short wheelbase. Um, it's, it's, have you struggled with with that, or actually, is it is it better than some people might expect? Well, uh, for sure, it's uh, not not it's not a rally car. Definitely, uh, you you can say like that. But uh, you are you have two things that you have to consider. First of all, it's a uh, it's a car that the spectators are crazy about, you know, due to the noise, I think. And uh, now in the workshop, we have everything. We have so from the Group 4 SC, Group 4, the 3-liter RS, the 974-liter uh, that I developed. And when I won the RGT Championship like two or three years ago. So we have everything. But funny thing is, even if you speak about a car was from Porsche, from 1977 to a car of 2015. <laughs> the technique to drive a Porsche is still the same in a rally. You have to consider what is good. It means the traction, the power. Uh, what is bad is for sure the front is very light. Even in 30 years, the percentage of the weight ratio is still the same. So your driving technique is more or less the same, you have to say. <laughs> so at the end of the day, for sure, I know very well how to drive the Porsche. On a, on a rally, I guess, Nürburgring, you know, Norschleife, help and so on and so on. But, uh, yeah, I think it's different, but it's a good, you know, yeah, for me, it's a lot of fun. And uh, even in the workshop, I have a, a Polo, Polo Air 5, but I prefer to drive the Porsche. I have more fun, <laughs> you know, due to the noise. <laughs> yeah. the, just before we kind of move on from, from Le Mans, which we were talking about earlier, you know, you, you mentioned that hypercars, there's a huge rule change coming up. What are your thoughts on on the new rule change? Is it all down to whether or not they can they can get the two top categories to kind of balance on the performance? Well, right now, I mean, I guess as you know, I'm I'm driving the Glickenhaus car for the month this year, so for sure I'm really involved of this in this new category of of hypercar, and definitely, um, I think it will be. I will, in one side, I will said it will be a big challenge for for the ACO and FIA to, to found the right BOP between such a big different category between LMDH and hypercar. But on the other side, if you consider that uh, back to 2015, when we came with this uh, uh, LMP1, completely crazy in terms of technology, Porsche, we have a two liter engine, very small with an eight megajoule class. Toyota at the time, they had a big V8 engine with a two megajoule clash was completely different. And at the end of the day, the lap time between Porsche, Audi, and Toyota were very similar. So they knew how to balance these this three, three brands who were completely opposite in terms of uh, technique. And, you know, with this uh, yeah, hybrid technology was so complicated to understand that even now, I guess, if you ask somebody what was the difference between the two megajoule and eight megajoule, nobody is able to explain you. <laughs> uh, at the end of the day, you have to, I think they will arrive to make a, a, a nice BOP, but for sure, the, right now, the, the future looks really, really, really great for endurance. This is very important, and uh, we will see. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, through your kind of Le Mans career or sports car career in general, you know, you've, you've seen this change from 
petrol to diesel to hybrid. What are you, what are your thoughts on these on these hybrid cars? Because they're obviously they're they're amazing, amazing on the performance side. You know, incredible to kind of watch. Are they harder to drive than a straight petrol car where you've you've you know it's more straightforward? You've got less to alter. Yes, you've got brake bias and all this kind of stuff. But really, from what I can see from the outside of a hybrid car, you're basically a computer technician and a driver. Well, at the end of the day, you know, if we think about, uh, yeah. Let's say, as you said, 2007, we are with Pescarolo in Le Mans with a very simple car with a good Judd engine, <laughs> V8 or V10. Yeah, and uh, doing. <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> but doing, doing at the time three minutes 30 in lap time in Le Mans. After we went, I went with Audi and suddenly came the technology with the diesel, the big five with Peugeot, and we go down to 320 more or less in Le Mans, 322. But, you know, it was a diesel at the time. We have to make publicity. That's a name. Make publicity for diesel. Suddenly, the diesel is fast. The diesel with a, <laughs> with a filter normally doesn't smoke. I said normally because on the night it was smoking suddenly more than on a day. But uh, suddenly the diesel became fashion. Some year later, suddenly we go back to very small engine. We are speaking about downsizing. <laughs> that was, again, marketing side very good and the hybrid is coming but for sure and again in kind of in a certain lap time of 320 uh, everything went faster definitely everything went uh, more expensive no doubt <laughs> but at the end of the day to drive it became um, for sure more and more complicated and yeah. uh, with the hybrid the car was, as you said, and I have to say for me, was very difficult at the start. You need to be more an, yeah, a computer <laughs> in, your, in your head than a driver. You have to change your driving style. You, you need to understand how to use the hybrid power or where to use or when to use. And uh, for sure, it was different. So I always said, for me personally, I am not so convinced that the spectator need all these uh, steps in terms of technology. <laughs> but for sure, for a brand like Porsche, we learn a lot in Le Mans with this uh, hybrid technology, uh, how to use it and also for the road car later on. So uh, for the show, I'm not so convinced. For to drive, I'm not so convinced. But in terms of uh, technology to learn things for the brand, this was not too bad. Yeah. And, you know, you, you race for two kind of, huge um efforts at Le Mans in terms of Audi and then very soon after with Porsche you know the right at the front of the grid in the LMP1 category were they quite similar to you know obviously putting aside that there is crossover with Porsche and Audi and Volkswagen um were they very similar teams to race for were their approaches any different or was was it sort of all, all quite uh, all quite similar uh when I when I joined Audi uh, I have to say, just before I was driving with Penske in USA, who is uh, with a spider, who, who is for me the benchmark of the, the best private team you can have in the world. I mean, if we could, if we can or could call him private, but it was a, uh, it's a fact. Uh, that's you know, Roger Penske is, is just some, somebody you, you need to meet one time in your life to understand. But after going to Audi, it was already a big step from Porsche to Audi in terms of uh, 
money involved. Audi, at the time with Porsche, we could, yeah, in USA, beat Audi just because we were more organized. We were, we were with Penske in all the details, very strong. Coming to Audi, it was suddenly a lot more money at the time. And some years later, going to Porsche in 2016, it was again one more step, I would say, in money side plus in details. So it was a kind of mix between a Penske and an Audi time. But uh, yeah, I have to say 2016 Porsche was more like a F1 team suddenly, that you have a lot of money. All the details, details are very important. But uh, yeah, the performance was there at the end. Yeah. So, so am I right in thinking that that's uh, Porsche Spider was your favorite car? Yeah, definitely. That was a, the, I would say, the easiest car to, to drive and the more fun. But uh, again, to go, just to, to, to finish about teams, if you look last year in Le Mans with the Rebellion run by Oreca at the end, so very small team in terms of money. We cannot compare with any manufacturer. Still, last year in Le Mans with the Rebellion race, we were doing 3 minutes 21. So at the end of the day, I just want to say that uh, the rule at the end of the day and the BOP are much more important to a certain point that the money was involved. It means last year, ASEO wanted to be, let's say, nicer with Rebellion to try that they can play a little bit with Toyota. And that uh, at the end, with uh, a lap time of 321 during the race, proves that rule are <laughs> even more important, or BOP, when I speak about rule, it's BOP, more important than the money you would involve if you want really to reach very fast lap time. Yeah. But it's, it's nice to hear that someone like yourself, who's so involved in current Le Mans, but been around for, you know, for 20 years, that you're very excited about the next era, I suppose. Um, but as you say, the proof is that all, you know, all these big names are signing up. Um, and seeing the big names in the top category, I think, is what the fans like to see. Um, so that's, you know, that's brilliant. I was uh, watching, a, I was listening to a podcast you did many years ago in Monaco with Henry Hope Frost. And it was on, on the world's, you know, your favourite circuits. And I was, I was really pleased to hear when you were talking, you were saying that actually the ones you really love the American ones because they they you know they're bumpy. There's blind there's blind corners. There's there's blind brows. Is that do you still very much believe that? Oh yeah, for sure. You know, I mean, American track are definitely the best, and um, in Europe, I would say like a track like uh, for sure Norschleife. Why is that? Because you know when I'm again uh, uh, somehow looking or reading the press on a Monday morning and we are speaking days after days, you know, big chief of Formula One about track limit or story like that, you know. Well, I think motorsport doesn't need this kind, this kind of, uh, you know, uh, press, I would say, or, or uh, you know, between big boss, what happened during the race, what you're seeing, whatever about this track limit. In USA, like that, you don't have any discussion. <laughs> you have a curb and after you have grass and after you have wall or, or let's say gravel. And, but I think it's, you know, that's the best, you know, we are here to race. We are not here. I always said we are in Le Mans. If you see the evolution of the track, it's very good. We are not here to die for sure. We are here to race, but the worst of the worst for sure. We don't want to have any accident, but the worst is to speak about track limit or what did you cut or if you went too wide or what. It's always discussion that we don't need in motorsport, you know. 
We yeah. need to race and we need to enjoy. Yeah. Interestingly, one of the tracks that you go particularly well at um, that does have tarmac, grass, and then a bank is Goodwood. Um, <laughs> and uh, you've obviously you, you've driven a huge range of cars there over the last few years, putting aside the Festival of Speed and the IDR, which we'll, we'll talk about in a, in a second. Um, have you had a few favourites at Goodwood that you've raced over the years? You know, when you are going to to Goodwood, for sure you you want to have nice cars. But at the end of the day, you are going there for the show and to enjoy. And at the end of the day, at the revival, when you have a car anyway with a with the tires that you are using, you are sliding so much that you can enjoy with any cars. <laughs> and that's the most important, you know. That uh, I start the first time I, I was driving a Gordini. You know, a very small car, but already to go fast, it was very complicated and so on and so on. And I have to say, I, I have a, a big respect when I'm going there. And I like to go there because you really see the skill of, a, you know, and of a driver. So many drivers going there with a big CV, but when it's time to slide and to, to, to go hill and toe and to shift properly, for the young generation, or for some also of my generation, it's a lot more complicated than uh, when it's uh, <laughs> with pedal shift and everything. And this I like because you, for me, a driver needs to drive everything in any categories, in any style, and that's the best driver. And so in good wood to go fast, you need to adapt, and this is very good. I um, <clears throat> We've actually got a, we've got a question here that I'll ask in a second, but <clears throat> there's, I think there's a difference between sliding and sliding precisely because i um was going around goodwood in my mgb and trying as hard as i could and marino was behind marino franchitti was behind me for one corner he was in a he disappeared obviously afterwards <laughs> he came over to, he, said, he said to me it looks great ed but you must try and make the apex at some point <laughs> so, with you guys driving them it's with proper skill it's it's amazing there's a i got a um question here from alex montgomery do you find the skills easily transferable between all your disciplines, whether that's modern cars and classic cars, um, especially when you have to jump in something on, on Dunlop historic tyres? At the end of the day, to drive a car to, I will say, the 80% of the potential of the car of, or yourself, it's not so complicated, or even 90%, because for sure, uh, I'm driving so many cars for so many years you can quickly go to to your limit. The stuff is that is definitely the last five ten percent means this this last ten percent. You really need everything. You know you need to to understand the car properly, to set up the car for you, to feel good inside the car, to adapt your style. If let's say the tires or or the car cannot be as you want. And uh, this is for sure the last 10% are the most complicated. Take an example of a GT3 car right now when I'm driving for Porsche. Uh, by driving after five laps, I am, the, I, I am at the limit of myself for, as a car. But it doesn't mean that I'm good. <laughs> and it's crazy because it's, it's like if you do the Porsche Super Cup. If I'm doing now Super Cup, I'm sure I will go the last five laps very fast. But after, I will be to my limit. And that will be P15 in the grid possible. Why? Because the last 10% are really the last 10% of when you are a specialist of all the details. So yes. at the end of the day, I will say all the categories are, are complicated when you want to reach the top, you know, to go 
fast. For sure, you need to adapt yourself quickly. To be really fast, you need to walk, no yeah. doubt. Do you think, do, you know, the, you, with your rallying, did that help your circuit racing and vice versa? Was there anything that you could take over that made you quicker? Uh, I think what was for sure, definitely what was helping me to do the rally and mainly to do with your own team, it's uh, about technique, you know, about understanding the car, chassis, your experience. Because even we cannot speak about, you know, <laughs> wheel travel when you are in a hypercar or LMP1, you know, <laughs> but you can still, uh, when you are hitting a curb, say, okay, in terms of damping, that's remember me, something that I made in a rally with a rebound or bump or stuff like that or roll bar, you know, and details like that for sure. Crossover are always good. Experience are always good. I don't mean, it doesn't mean that, uh, I want to be an engineer because that's a, you know, the, the, the critical point to, to found I'm here to drive and not to be the engineer, but I'm here to help the engineers, you know? And, um, so I think experience always help. And, uh, for me, I always see good points to do many things. Yeah. Now a large sort of, I would say large part of your CV, certainly from my perspective, is your record at Pikes Peak, um, which all of our listeners and, and viewers will obviously know about. Um, it is a hill climb sort of like, like no other. How, what was your first experience of it? Well, Pikes Peak, first time I, I was there in 2012, I was doing a French rally championship with, um, at the time, uh, nine and seven uh, GT3 3.8 that we developed completely privately with my team. And uh, I was doing the French Rally Championship. It was a Rally Charbonnier, who is quite famous. And we were close to win overall in front of WRC and so on. And at the end, it started to rain. And last stage, I lost and finished P2 or P3, whatever. And I was so pissed off. I said to my guys, to my mechanics, to my team, I said, guys, we never win overall. With my dream was to win overall with my own Porsche develop at home in front of WSE. I said we never win. Always something is happening, gravel, rain, whatever. So I said we should go to Pikes Peak. You know, I said something like that. They were all listening to me and said, "Okay, we go to Pikes Peak." But it was in April, and Pikes Peak was in June. <laughs> so suddenly on a Monday after, they all called me and said, "So we go to Pikes Peak. It's end of June." Whoa, I say, yeah, but now we have to find a car, we have to do something. So suddenly I was thinking, okay, why not to do Pikes Peak? It's the first year in Tarmac, full Tarmac. So I said, okay, we will take a Porsche like in Nürburgring and we will modify with a short gearbox and everything. So in one month, we develop our, let's say, own concept. Uh, it was a, a 997 GT3R at the time. It was really nice. It was in, in dark gray. And we make a big rear wing, big splitter on the front, a lot of downforce. Everybody was thinking that it was done by the factory, but actually we all done at the workshop. <laughs> all these parts were not in carbon, but they were in fiberglass, but they look so nice that everybody was thinking it was done at the factory. But no, it was all in my shop. Uh, we were testing a lot on an on a airfield close to the workshop to do top speed and so on and so on, downforce and everything. And we went to Pikes Peak, as we said. And uh, we arrived there. Our car was very, very low, set up like for Nürburgring. And all the cars were quite high in, in ride height. And we went to the tech before the race. And we could even not go on a scale because our car was too low. 
And so they were all laughing at us, like, what what this Frenchy are doing, you know, with a car like that? Where they never race here, they have a car very low and so on and so on. Me, I didn't say anything. I said, let's continue like that. We try. And uh, and the race went very well. We finished uh, second overall. Okay, two cars in front crashes. Uh, unfortunately, we lost for, I think, less than two-tenths of the second to Rhys Millen, but we get the, the rain on top, so it's why we lost. And, uh, yeah, I just went in love with this race. And after uh, the year after, that was 2012, 2013, Peugeot contacted me and said, okay, we do a car. We want you to drive, but unfortunately, Porsche refused. And it was good for, for Peugeot because uh, uh, Sebastian Loeb drove and he won. <laughs> but uh, Porsche refused here in Geneva, the motor show. And uh, so I said, okay, I have no chance against Peugeot, so I will not do Pike Speak in 2013. But the last minute, I was so pissed off. I said, okay, we will do our own prototype now. <laughs> so I called Norma. And uh, again, very late, like uh, April or May, I said, why not we do a prototype? I say we have no chance against Peugeot, but we do the prototype. So we, we do a very light car. We went there. And then fortunately, we were qualified P2 after a lap, for sure. And on a race, we DNF because we had electric issue. It's the only time we DNF. And I was so pissed that we didn't win. I said, okay, we go again next year. And, uh, and the year after, 2014, we start to win overall. <clears throat> and after we won in a row, 14, 15, 16. 16 was the best car we developed. It was a four-wheel drive prototype, actually, with uh, the wheels. We are from the RS Spider from the Penske time. <laughs> I get uh, wheel from, wheels from uh, Roger. <laughs> so uh, that was our best car that we made. We, we had a chance to, to beat the, the record overall already, but uh, we had a problem with the spark plug on the race. So we, we won the race, but we finished with three cylinder. And uh, Volkswagen called me and decided to, yeah, to, to buy everything, the cars, the wings, uh, our data, all what we had. So I sold everything to Volkswagen and we continue after with the electric car. Yeah, and so and that was the birth of the IDR. Yes, yeah. actually, uh, the idea was still the normal chassis uh, uh, was still the same. For sure, they put an, an, a nice, uh, <laughs> a nice uh, body kit, uh, a different splitter on the front. We cover the car uh, roof, <clears throat> but uh, below that was still the normal chassis. And uh, instead to have an engine, it was a lot of battery also on my right side. And that was a very nice experience with uh, FX de Maison, uh, who is now actually in England with Williams in yeah. F1, but it uh, was a really nice time. A very small team, Volkswagen Motorsport, but uh, with, uh, I, I would say, the professionalism of uh, LMP1 team, but with the rally attitude. <laughs> so yeah. very small, very punchy. Always, if you need to change something, we do. And uh, yeah, we had a... Such a, a good, great time. It was uh, very nice. Yeah. Well, we'll talk a bit more about the IDR in a second, but Pikes Peak, you know, I mean, you had experienced, you know, when you first went there, you'd experienced so much in your racing career, but does does anything prepare you for Pikes Peak? Because I, I have to say, I've never been there, but just looking at video footage, at photos, you know, I know you like a circuit with not much runoff, but Pikes Peak, <laughs> there are points. If you get it wrong... Um, you just you just won't you won't stop you just you just keep going yeah you are right i mean uh, for sure i know the I, when i came there in 2012 i didn't know the place but uh, again my dad was doing a lot of when he was young rally and hill climb so i knew what was really hill climb racing i'm uh, 
still a big fan of heat climb. Actually, for me, heat climb are the number one motorsport category. It's unfortunately not the well-known category, but it's the most dangerous. And um, and when I went there, so I learned the road, and I know I speak 100%, but it's this kind of race that, uh, yeah, let's say, you know, uh, in 2018, when we won with Volkswagen, I said, okay, I don't do anymore. Actually, I will do again this year, but with a GT car, so we'll be more relaxed. <laughs> but I said that was too much. It's a little bit, uh, remember me a little bit, the unlimited, you know, uh, diving, uh, you know, to go as low as possible in there. <laughs> yeah. So you always push a little bit more your limit, you know. But the problem is, where is the limit? And this, you don't want to know. <laughs> and uh, and uh, speaking a lot of, some years ago was a nice article in, in, in France with Lub and me. And Love said, for me, Pike Speak was the most dangerous, dangerous race I never made. And he, he said, I don't want to do anymore. Even if I don't have the record, I don't want to do anymore. And uh, at the point, I said, okay, I'm not the only one who is, who is thinking about it. You know, we're thinking, Ooh, this race, you don't want that a wing is breaking or puncture, you know, something like that, because you know that you can die, you know, definitely. And uh, the stuff is that when you have the helmet, you don't think about, but uh, when you are on top, when, when you finish your run, you take out the helmet, you're like, okay, we, we get to the top. That's already good. <laughs> After we look the lap time, you know, yeah. this kind of racing, unfortunately, for you, I mean, uh, you know, in, with Ildeman, what is it in, in motorcycle? It's that when you get, when you finish the lap, you're happy. You know, already you have the respect that you finish it and after you see the result. Now, if we could just take a very short pause there. I hope you're enjoying this podcast. This wouldn't have been possible without our partner, Princess Yachts. Princess Yachts has become a long-term supporter of motorsport and really is a part of the fabric of it now. Much like the one with the green masthead, Princess Yachts epitomizes the best of British manufacturing, and that can be seen in every one of its products. Every yacht is designed with forward-thinking mentality, and if you get a moment, do please head to princessyachts.com to see what this extraordinary company does on a daily basis. I mean, obviously with the IDR, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't really a problem, but it's such a climb up Pike's Peak. Can you as a driver feel the difference in the power in the engine because obviously the higher you go the less power you've got can you tell can you feel that on the way up i always said you know with the technology you have now if you have a proper <clears throat> engine petrol engine you can nearly compensate everything what you are losing so uh if you you know with a big turbo charge with now with the anti-lag with a fresh air for the turbo you can really compensate and i'm convinced that uh, even now a good petrol engine could go faster than what we've done with the IDR. Yeah, really. Yeah, yeah. You, I mean, you, you had some, you know, the IDR was kind of such an amazing project and it just, I think it captured so many people's imagination because people love, you know, putting whether it's electric or not aside, what they love are people trying to break boundaries and break records. I think there's something in the kind of the human spirit that wants to go and break all these records. Um, I was actually, I was working at Goodwood obviously when you were doing the, the runs in the IDR, um, the most recent time when you did the 39.9 or 39.6, whatever it was, um, you, were, you were pushing quite hard, weren't you, up that hill? Yeah, but you know what is good? 
I'm a I mean, if you think about doing rally with a 911 Group 4 or doing a, a Dakar with a V8 engine or doing a, a Le Mans, whatever, you, you will think how Dumas can drive an electric car. He's a motorsport fan. <laughs> so I am completely agree with you that at the end of the day, when you are a driver, you are here to, to go as fast as possible. And it was the same at Volkswagen Motorsport. If you speak about De Maison, you are winning the WSE championship. Suddenly, you will do an electric car. You will say, it cannot be. But at the end, we were all on the same motivation to go as quick as possible. And I realized in Goodwood at the festival, how can you imagine an electric car going to, in England, in Goodwood? Everybody will, will, will laugh about your car, but not. Actually, when your guys, the English fan, realize, I'm not English fan only, but the pure English fan who are there for the revival, who are there for the festival of speed, realize that this electric car can, can be so fast, they were also impressed. And yeah. I remember all these guys when I was going down, clapping the hand, you know, and shouting. I said, finally, I realized that, okay, we are all on the same, I will say, uh, on, on the same direction, <laughs> that we like the big V10 with the noise. Yes, but we all like record and we all like speed. And at the end, I felt that all these English fans were also impressed and passionate about the result and about this car. And that was something surprising. Yeah. I will not say that I'm crazy about crazy about Formula E going very slow on the on the street. No, no, no. I will say that I was impressed by these cars who are, I mean, this idea was so fast and impressed people. And that was good, you know. Yeah. That was a good feeling. Yeah. And so to go back to your question, for sure I was pushing. <laughs> <laughs> there was um there was because I think it was in one of the practice runs, you went you had a moment when you were sort of on the grass and there was, oh, yeah. I, I did a tweet this morning asking for, if anyone wanted to ask some questions. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the questions was, how close did you come to crashing? And a photographer replied, a guy called Jochen, that's uh, from Frozen Speed. And he had a photo of the side of your car and it had a tiny bit of straw bale wedged. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and he said, this close. Yeah. <laughs> it was obviously yeah. quite a hair raising moment. Yeah, it was crazy because actually it's the only time we had that. It's two stories about it. The first one is um, <clears throat> after the start, so four-wheel drive car. After the start, we had a, an issue with the inverter, so the engine on the front, and all the power went to the rear. So it's why when I'm going on power, suddenly I get a big snap over here and I lost the car. By chance, okay, it was close. It was nice for the picture, actually, and it was a good rally style. <laughs> Nothing was happening. But the second point is, on this corner came and was there the boss of Volkswagen. He just arrived 20 minutes before the run, and he said, okay, I will go on this corner. <laughs> and actually, he was there, and I remember him going after the run, going to me and say, it's always like that. It's the first time I met him. I never saw him before. <laughs> So Do you see, was, have you seen him since? Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm sure he was happy, but... Uh. <laughs> brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Um, I wanted to also talk about Dakar. Um, you know, the, the rallying is one thing, but really the, the Dakar rally is is something else entirely. Um, have you always wanted to do the Dakar? Now, how did, how did that come about? 
Yeah, same stories on Rally, Pikes Peak, Le Mans. Uh, when I was young, uh, Dakar was, uh, I mean, still well known in France. And uh, each evening it was on TV, like it is now, right now. I mean, uh, and uh, with my brother, we were always looking Dakar. Each evening in front of the TV, before to go to bed, we are looking Dakar. And so it was in my mind. And uh, again, with my team, after Pikes Peak, I mean, during Pikes Peak, because first time we made Dakar was 2015. I said, okay, now we will do Dakar. So uh, we drove two times in Argentina. First year finished 20, second year finished eight with a Peugeot. And um, uh, I said, uh, so after I miss, I think two editions because I was in Daytona <clears throat> for 24 because it was same date. And uh, yeah, and last year I said, okay, now we'll do again Dakar, but I want to do my own car. So it's a little bit complicated, I have to say, for Dakar. More complicated than in Pikes Peak or more complicated than Rally because Dakar is two weeks and 5,000 kilometers. So last year was not really, it was very frustrating because the car was burning at the first stage. So we lost the car. The second car finished the race last year with a customer, with Mr. Pesci, the boss of Rebellion. And, uh, and this year we finished. Uh, it was not easy. We had a lot of issue. But we finished the race, so that was already very good for the team, you know, to see a car crossing the finish line. But, uh, yeah, it's a big experience. It's very difficult. For sure, it's a, I mean, it's completely different than what I am used to, even compare rally or, or Pikes Peak or circuit. This is completely different. It's really like if we said, okay, we are playing tennis, and suddenly we are playing badminton. <laughs> you have uh, yeah four wheel one steering but all the rest is different yeah and how <clears throat> i mean i you know experience obviously counts across all motorsport categories but i i get a sense that at the dakar experience is really the number one thing that you can have because you know if you look at the results of dakar over time it's that the people who've been very quick of uh, you know conor mccray for example mm. was extraordinarily quick on the dakar but he, he crashed quite quickly but when you look at the winners People who win tend to win a lot. And I guess that obviously it's experience that, that makes you win the Dakar, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. I think, uh, I mean, like, again, all motorsport, F1, endurance, rally, Dakar, you need to practice a lot. You know, you cannot arrive at the top like that. In Argentina, when it was in Argentina, it was a lot easier than what it is now because Argentina was a lot of uh, WRC stages. So it's why uh, when Love came, suddenly he was really fast straight away. And uh, and even for me, that I never drove so much on the gravel, I finished P8. Uh, on the second year, without testing with my own team, best private team. So everybody was thinking, who is Dumas? Where is coming from this guy? But actually it was, was not so complicated. If you are, you know, with your experience of endurance to take care of the car, it was possible to do a good result. Now. It's again a pure, really Dakar with navigation, with nearly each day 50, 60, 80 kilometers of dunes, with rocks, huge rocks. So it's, uh, yeah, you need experience. You need a very good co driver. And, uh, and you need to drive at, uh, I would say, 90, uh, 80%. But you need to be at 80% all the time. Doesn't mean 100% plus puncture, plus get lost plus the flip, <laughs> no, you need 80% all the time. And this is complicated because over 500 kilometers of stage, to be at 80% on all the dunes that you don't know where you are going, 
So you have a lot of stress. It's very hot. The sand is very soft. Your copilot is also with a lot of stress. And this is why it's always the same guys who are winning because they know how to handle this pressure. Yeah. I t- many years ago, there was a team um, called, well, there's a team called Race to Recovery that took injured servicemen and women and got them into motorsport. And they did, you know, the, the Dakar and Land Rovers um, and those Boulder Wildcats. And we went off on a, I went on a training run with them to the desert in Land Rovers. And the dunes that we were doing are tiny compared to what you experience on the proper Dakar. But it blew my mind. I mean, I've been, I've been a passenger in loads of different cars and been lucky enough to be in a DTM car, a racing lorry, uh, um, a rally car, but this thing... And the confidence that you must have as a driver going up the top of, I think, do they call them razorback dunes where you go up the dune, but there's the, there's the overhang. Mm. Just, and you can't go over too quickly because you roll forward. Exactly. You quick enough, you drop back down. So you exactly. have to get the speed exactly right. And you just see sky, 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 sky. And then this massive what? drop. Yeah. Oh. It's, uh, you know, this year for a small story, it's, uh, this year, so on the first stage, uh, we start very far. We finish the stage 20, 20 something, I think. So it was good stage. Second stage, unfortunately, that is unbelievable. Somebody crashed into my back. I think possibly you saw the picture and, and took the wheel away. <laughs> so I have to repair the car. And uh, we lost uh, six or seven hours. So second day, suddenly I look during seven hours. You have time to look. And I looked the road book and I realized that the next 300 kilometers was only dunes. That I did not realize is suddenly in South Arabia at five in the afternoon, it started to be dark. The story is that I finished the stage at midnight. So I drove seven hours in the dune. But when you are seven hours in the dune on your day two, that you even did not practice dune for years, suddenly, on a night with your small light, you are for sure, as you can imagine, light for race car and not for hot car. <laughs> so it means you see nothing. On a day too, that you have to, st- you sometimes stop before the dune. You go out of the car with a small, you know, light and you go on top of the dune to look what is next <laughs> waiting for you. And I say, okay, I can go. I do a dune. I go down. Next time I go out of the car with my light, I go to see the next dune. And I come back, you know, and suddenly you are thinking, but what I'm doing here, you know? So on the day, it's impressive. So on the night, it's just, you know, so much stress. You finish, you are like, if you made two times 24 all the mine in a row. <laughs> <laughs> but, you, but you're going back next year, I take it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. You know, because we are because we are stupid, we will do again. <laughs> so now, we're sort of drawing to an end. There's, there's one reader's question here from uh, Jimbo Wilson, who was really wanting to know what your favorite corner was at any racetrack. Oh, that's a good, that's a good question. Yeah. (sighs) Probably not, probably not one of the sand dunes in the Dakar, I take it. Oh, no, no, but that's that's (laughs) a problem. It's no corner anymore, you know, with I will say that I think the, one of the most challenging for sure. I will say the Orouge in Spa. Yeah. That's very nice, you know, because uh, unfortunately, again, now you have too much uh, tarmac around. 
but it's a kind of corner that each lap is a challenge. I mean, in general, you know, take uh, if we speak about the European track, eh? if you speak about a senior corner in Le Castellet, it's also a challenge. I mean, a fast corner, it's always very nice. If you take a corner one in Branzach, it's for you guys, it's also very difficult. Um, uh, yeah, Beckett's in Silverstone, you know, I mean, Cops or stuff like that. It's You have a lot of always fast corner as a... It's a challenging corner, definitely. Yeah. And just finally for me, I mean, obviously, you know, this podcast is is part of the Porsche's winning Formula Series. You know, you've done way too much in your career to just talk about all the bits with Porsche. But what what is it that, you know, Porsche, I know there's obviously been breaks, but from the 917 and even the 908 before that, you know, 90, uh, the 917 in 1970, all the way through to the 919 hybrid, all those Le Mans wins, you know, the win in Formula One, They've, they've won in Formula One as an engine partner. They've won across everything. Um, what What is it? Is it because they're motorsport fans? Is it because they love it? Or is it because of something else? No, I think definitely if you are driving, and uh, hopefully, I, I, I mean, when you are speaking with Norbert Singer, he is the right example of what is Porsche. First time I won Le Mans in 2003 in overall with a, we won overall with a smaller class compared to the big class. My engineer was Norbert Singer. At the time, he was already, how we said, 66, 68. So he, he was retired already. <laughs> and it was the first time I see somebody drinking a Red Bull. On the middle of the night, he was with his computer open. At the time, not so many engineers had a computer. He was with a Red Bull drink. I was looking at him and thinking, what is doing this whole guy? <laughs> and suddenly, it means... You need to be passionate to do this job. And Porsche had the, for sure the brand for passionate people. Hopefully, it will stay like that forever. Because it means when you are going there, you work with passionate people who want to achieve a result. And that's the most important. Yeah. And uh, definitely, Porsche get bigger and bigger in terms of employee, in terms of uh, involvement in motorsport. You see Formula E, GT, LMP. But you need to be passionate and uh, with passion, you can achieve a lot. And that's, you know, when on top of that, you have budget to do it and you have, due to that, the right people. And I think that's a force, you know, that is no compromise. Everybody needs to work on the same direction. And that is how I think it it was always working and uh, it will work again. Yeah. And from your perspective, I know, you know, you're going back to the Dakar. What... What is it on the motorsport list that you that you haven't done that you still want to do? Is there anything else out there that you haven't done? Unfortunately, it's not so many races, you know, that I did not do. I mean, uh, <laughs> I mean, this question uh, came a lot of times, and still, 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 still the same. And I say, okay, I'm too old to do Formula One, or possibly historic. <laughs> <laughs> I had an offer to do Indy like three, four years ago, but I said, well, I was, uh, you know, at a, a, a boy now. Uh, it was, I didn't feel it to do it and to take so much risk. If I was alone, I would say I would like to do it, but uh, in the middle of a group like that, without experience, so you are open to, to make mistakes. <clears throat> I said, no, I don't feel it. 
So uh, right now, it's not so many uh, races. I would like to do the Barra 1000 in USA, definitely, because in Europe, it's not so famous, but in US, it's famous. And for sure, I'm sure it's completely different than what we are used to. So this, I hope I will do soon. Could be interesting. And for the rest, uh, I will continue, you know, to, first of all, to enjoy about what I'm doing, because when you enjoy it, you do it well. And that's the most important. Yeah. And what what a lovely note to end on. I, you know, the with you the all the different disciplines you've done from all, winning all those all the sports car races, the GT racing, Dakar rallying, um, always trying new disciplines. You know, I, it's just brilliant to meet and talk to a current driver that's done all of this. You know, so often that you know modern drivers will do one discipline and that's all they do. You're you're almost like sort of a modern day Dan Gurney. So thank you so much. <laughs> for sparing the last hour. It's been absolutely fascinating, Romat, and I'm sure everyone has enjoyed it um, as much as me. So thank you, and the best of luck over the coming months months and years ticking off that Dakar and, and the Barjar Bar 1000. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much. It was a pleasure again. See you in Goodwood. Yes, For absolutely. sure, I will, be, I will be at the revival. It's on my note, and uh, minimum the revival and festival of speed if I can. But uh, yeah, I will be there. And um, yeah, we continue like that. Again, how many years? 20, 30? We'll see. <laughs> yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you also for watching, for listening. We'll see you all soon again on a Motorsport Magazine podcast. See you then. Thanks for watching. Bye-bye.